and we filmed a May Day demonstration which was um, organised by a small group of leftists and it was just attacked by the police with incredible brutality and they just smashed people's cameras. Um, I managed to get, get off with the film still in the camera and I was amazed that I wasn't shot. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In this episode, we welcome back John Green, who told us about his covert reporting for East Germany. The story continues with trips to Portugal to cover the Carnation Revolution, a military coup, a dangerous assignment to Chile under General Pinochet, as well as visits to Nicaragua, the United States and Poland. Don't miss the story of Jack Ryan. It's nothing to do with the Tom Clancy character, but it's a really interesting tale. Before we start, I'd like to thank our latest Patreon, who is Pinito.me. Patreons are listeners like you who are supporting the podcast with their monthly donations starting from a pound or a dollar. Just head over to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option to learn more. If that's not your cup of tea, then you can also help us by leaving a review in iTunes or with your favourite podcast provider. It really does help us get new guests on the show. So back to today's episode we join my Cold War conversation with John Green as he describes the Carnation Revolution in Portugal. So we've, we've talked about um, South Africa and some of the, um, the work you did there. Portugal's an interesting country because it was under a dictatorship, I think it's Salazar, Yes. And then there was a, a left-wing military coup, which mm-hmm. is not a uh, phrase you often hear of. No, it was, it was well, it took everybody by surprise. Um, I mean, Salazar was the longest-serving dictator in, in Europe for 40 years. And then Cayetano, who was another right-wing dictator, took over uh, shortly before the coup. And we had filmed in Portugal um, under the dictatorship, and it was, as in Greece, it was very difficult to film and um, very difficult to find people you could talk to um, because they were obviously very scared. Um, but we managed to, as soon as we heard about the coup, we managed to fly out there and we got there only a couple of days later. Um, and it was the most incredible experience for me um, because you had soldiers everywhere on the streets with carnations in their gun barrels and being embraced and kissed by all the women and the girls and uh, people on the streets. Everyone was talking animatedly on the street corners. You could you could feel that was people felt this sudden relief that the dictatorship had finished. Um, and uh, it was it was a time of incredible euphoria. People with the prisons were opened. P- political prisoners were being released. Um, I went over there with two Portuguese young journalists who'd been working for the BBC um, foreign <clears throat> foreign broadcasting service here, um, and they they were embraced by all their friends at the airport who hadn't seen them for years, and they actually found their own files in the Secret Service Department when we went with them. Um, you know, they were on, obviously on the blacklist, um, 
So it was all these, and then hearing the stories of the ex-political prisoners, what they did, the torture they'd undergone uh, under the dictatorship. It was amazing. It was just, you couldn't put the camera down. There was just so much to film. No, and it must have been an amazing moment because it's it's like being there when the revolution is is happening. You're not recording something that happened in the past and for all your um, beliefs, it was sort of like seeing those being enacted there in front of your camera in a, in another country. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it reminded me of what it must have been like for, for John Reed or any of the reporters who were in, in, in Russia in 1917, because you felt that, because, because the army was doing it. They were on the streets, but they were obviously very much part of the people because the Portuguese army was a conscript army still. So most of the ordinary soldiers weren't happy there. It was part of their military service. Um, and so they were part of the people and the people felt that and they felt that the army was had launched this coup on their behalf. Um, and so that was yeah, incredibly invigorating. Mm. And you also did some work in Nicaragua. So mm -hmm. that was after the Sandinistas had had got to power or was that before? Yes, that was after the Sandinistas got to power, but the... But the the, the civil war was still continuing because the Contras, financed by the Americans, were still fighting in the country, um, and people were still being killed. Bombs were going off, so it was it was so still a pretty fraught situation. You couldn't just travel anywhere throughout the country. You had to be very careful where you were where you were moving. <clears throat> but again, it was it was thrilling to see a country trying to um, rebuild uh, itself from the ashes. Um, and that's why this civil war, particularly with American finance, the Contras, was was so debilitating, and uh, and those repercussions are still being felt today. Yeah, yeah. Because <clears throat> I believe Ortega's still, or is he in power? Ortega's now? still in power, though the, 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 the Sandinistas split. They had they had they had big problems. I mean, they were they were destabilized, as I say, by the Contras and the Americans, and basically the country was economically on its knees. Um, and then you had, in the meantime, a right-wing government, and then Ortega came back into power, mm. but he split from his from his former comrades, and there are big differences now about what he's doing. Right, right. So he's he's not of is he still of the Marxist persuasion? Yes, he or? still calls himself a Marxist, and still it's still a Sandinista um, government. Um, but it's to me, it seems a little more dictatorial than it should be. Mm. Um, and um, although he's, uh, you know, he works closely with Venezuela, and the Americans obviously hate him because he's because of his socialist ideas. Um, but uh, it's it's uh, it's a even now it's a sort of civil war situation almost. Yeah. Again. Yeah. And staying in South America, I was interested to hear about your time in Chile. Can you share some of that? Yes. Well, again, we. You know, it was, it was, we went to Chile when Pinochet was still in power to show what a dictatorship is really like, a fascist dictatorship, what it does to people. Um, and that was quite difficult to film because we had to get, we, well, we tried to get press credentials, which they didn't give us, but they said we could, we could film basically what we wanted. Um, but Pinochet was still very much, <clears throat> um, in power. And we filmed a May Day demonstration, which was um, 
organized by a small group of leftists and it was just attacked by the police with incredible brutality and and that was one of the occasions where the press wasn't um treated with um kid gloves and they just smashed people's cameras and uh, i just grabbed my camera and ran and my colleague who had the sound equipment his microphone was torn out of his hand um and he was he was bashed around <coughs> by by the by the thugs that the police employed um, I managed to get get off with the film still in the camera, and I was amazed that I wasn't shot because there were um, soldiers with machine guns on every street corner. But why they didn't do anything to me, I don't know. And I managed to find a taxi and escape back to the hotel with the film still intact. Um, but it was that was also a scary moment. But we were able to talk to quite a few people working underground there, mm. lawyers, human rights lawyers. Um, and young socialists, young communists who are working against the regime, who were willing to talk to us. Um, and they were very suspicious of us because we know that because uh, the Chilean embassy actually rang our office here in London to inquire about us because they, they were a bit suspicious who we were. Um, but they, again, we managed to get out of the country and they didn't take any film off us. So that was, it was quite successful. Right. Because I think you said that you were filming Pinochet. You managed to get some footage. Yes, it was amazing. We we he was he was uh, taking the the salute from a new group of um, young police cadets that had just um, uh, done their training, um, and we we read about it in the newspaper. And we just turned up and um, pushed our way to the front, and uh, found myself filming Pinochet marching in front of the, 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 the young cadets with my camera under his nose, and he didn't look very happy at all. He didn't like it, but <laughs> he did. He presumed we'd got permission, which we hadn't, but, but uh, we, we, we managed God, to film Little that. did he know that exactly. it was uh, East German TV exactly. right yes. in front of him. That wow. Yes, because that was, that was the additional um, worry for us, because if anybody did find out, we, we, yeah. we would be <laughs> yeah. for the high so, jump. So... Did people not realise that you were working for GDR TV? Presumably you didn't tell anybody outside of the GDR who you were actually working for and you were just sort of like a freelance business filming, just filming documentary footage. Was that what you were, that was almost your cover? Yes, I mean with people we trusted we did tell them. Um, but obviously, when you're filming in in the United States or in a fascist country like like Pinochet's Chile, you you couldn't afford to do that. Um, but what we did do, which was which was basically the the truth, even though only half the truth, is we said, look, we're a, we're a, we're an independent company, and we sell our footage to whoever's interested in taking it. Mm. Um, so that that basically let us off the hook. We weren't telling direct lies, um, but we obviously didn't tell them who the what the end purpose was. Okay. And you mentioned the USA. So you, you did a few visits um, to the USA. What, what would you say were the most memorable visits you did there? Well, I think one of the, there were several, but I mean, one we did on the, on the peace movement and the movement in, of the bishops and the progressive Catholic church in, in America, trying to um, stop the, um, <clears throat> The arms race. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot of lot of interviews with with people in various places. Um, we also did um, a documentary on racism in in North Carolina, where 
as still today, but even then, black people were just being imprisoned for all sorts of minor offences with enormous draconian sentences. And particularly if they were progressive um, people, like Ben Chavis was the one film we made about Ben Chavis, who's a, a young preacher from North Carolina, um, who was imprisoned, I think, for 20 years um, because he was supposedly involved in arson, which where a few horses were, were burnt. Um, and that was that was that was the sort of draconian sentences they were being given. So that was interesting. We looked, we talked to white people as well about what they felt about race, and it, it was still a very racist state in those days. Um, very, very, very much more so, obviously, than it, than it is today. We also did a film on the border with Mexico, which is interesting because that's now with Trump is mm. in the news again. Um, and this was, in a sense. As far as the our GDR um, contractors were concerned, it was an alibi for them because the, the wall was obviously under attack. Um, because you don't, you know, a wall erected in a country to stop people leaving or stop people coming in is certainly not a nice thing. And they thought, well, let's do let's do a film about the the border where the Americans are trying to stop all the Mexicans and other immigrants coming in. So that was quite an interesting film because you know it showed the way they were using using technology they they developed in Vietnam with sensors in the ground mm. and um, night sights and everything to, to track the migrants coming across the border who were then arrested by immigration and sent back mm. to Mexico. Because the, the GDR portrayed the the wall as the anti-fascist rampart to yes, stop... As a, as a defence wall, yeah, yes. Exactly. Yeah, so it was a direct allegory of... Yes, it, of, was, it, was uh, a, it was a comparison. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's what they yeah. felt, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's not a good comparison, in my opinion. Well, but, but anyway, no. But I can see the angle that they were, <laughs> yes, uh, yes. That they were trying to trying to get at there. I mean, I, d I did note down here that you you did something with Generals for Peace, where you were filming nuclear missile silos. Yes. Yes, that was a that was an organisation which was, as you say, Generals for Peace. It was um, a number of German, French, Belgian, American, and British. Uh, generals. Um, the British one was General Harbottle, mm. who, who we flew to um, America with him, and, and General Gerhard Bastian, who was who was one of became a member of the Green Party yeah. and uh, committed suicide, unfortunately. Um, and then there was Admiral La Roche, I think his name was in the States. Um, and we visited again. We visited various communities where these missiles were stationed. Um, one I remember, a, a lady in Wisconsin had this enormous farm and she took us out to these silos where, you know, they were on her farm and she said, look, my, I've got my kids here. This is, if this is, you know, we're, we're a prime target having these missiles on, on our land. Mm. And she, so she'd become a very strong peace activist, uh, people like that, yeah. I think you tell in the book there's a conflict there because her husband was... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. 
Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Not necessarily, but, you know, she she was right. become the peace activist and he was fine with he, having this yes, stuff there. Yes, he, he wasn't happy about that at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So family split there. Absolutely, yes, yes. Um, I wrote down the name Jack Ryan, and I know it's not the Tom Clancy character. No. Can you tell me about this Jack Ryan? Yes, he was he was a um, an FBI man um, who would, had been asked to spy on uh, the peace activists in America, um, <clears throat> and um, because they'd been they'd been organizing demonstrations outside uh, army recruitment centers and and calling for opposition to um, <clears throat> to the armaments industry and nuclear weapons. And Jack was spying on them, um, and he got to know quite a number of them. And he himself was a Catholic, um, and realized that many were motivated by Christian principles, and that they were doing no harm to America, and didn't want to do harm to America. They just wanted to stop the arms race. And he told his superiors that he didn't feel it was right that they should be spied on, because they're not endangering the states in any way. Um, and he was eventually sacked and lost his pension, um, but still stuck to his principles. So we did a, a portrait of, of, of him, yeah. And he was, he was in a poor state mentally and psychologically because he was now ostracized from all his mates from, the, from his time at the FBI because he was, he was a true American patriot who mm. believed that's why he joined the FBI. That's what he wanted to do. It's an interesting story, that, because, I mean, that, that's one of the things I'm trying to cover within the podcast mm. is some of these stories that people have never heard of and yes. until i'd read your book the only jack ryan i knew was the tom clancy right, character yes. and this this individual sounds as brave perhaps more so than you know any uh fictional fictional character so uh, i'll be delving more into that or see what what more i can find out about that story well, if you check out the magazine mother jones because mm. they did a big portrait of him that's how we picked it up it's quite a right. well-known magazine. Yeah. Um, but, yes, I mean, he was an all-American guy. You know, he mm. believed in the system. He wasn't political at all, but just became to, came to realize that peace was a big issue and, and these were genuine people. So it was a very tragic mm. case in many ways. Mm. Um, you, you did some filming in Afghanistan. Now, was that after the Soviet invasion? No, this was before. Um, actually, that was that was a bit of a... A farce, really, because we were supposed to. It was after the first Afghan coup against the <clears throat> against the king, who was who was quite a backward conservative, and it was it was a military coup again, uh, but a small group of leftist soldiers who took over, and so we flew out there uh, and wanted to film, but unfortunately, at the, this was one of the rare cases where at the airport they confiscated our film camera, um, and we weren't able to do any filming and after six days of just sitting around in a hotel doing nothing we decided to go home um yeah documentary filmmaking without a camera was probably quite challenging it's very difficult exactly <laughs> so i mean we picked up all the atmosphere i mean again it was interesting because there were tanks on the on the on the street but um garlanded with flowers and people mm. seemed very happy at the coup but we we didn't know what was going on because we didn't have an interpreter as i say we didn't have a film camera to film so right it was a bit of a Botched job. <laughs> oh, well. Um, I was interested to read about your time in Poland with Solidarity because obviously that would have been a worry for the the GDR government. 
um, at the time. I mean, how how did you cover solidarity? Yeah, well, that was that was a time when I was, to a certain extent, becoming disillusioned with the fact that I thought felt the the communist countries were certainly not moving <clears throat> towards democracy, which I'd hoped, um, and that the system was as ossified as it always has been. It wasn't changing. The old leadership was really entrenched and they weren't reading the signs, which I could see. There was an increasing dissatisfaction, even in the population of the GDR. And with Poland and Solidarność, um, even though I wasn't in sympathy with many of the leaders because I think they were Catholic reactionaries, um, nevertheless, I realised that the communist regime in Poland was unpopular, had been right from the start, and there was certainly no love for the Russians. And so I realised that Solidarność certainly had a popular base, even though it was obviously being promoted by the West and supported financially and everything else mm. by the Americans, because anything which could help undermine the communist system would, was obviously grist to their mill. But I was very unhappy about characterising it, or supposedly characterising it, as a, a counter-revolutionary movement, um, which was basically just um, financed and put in place by the West, which I didn't believe and, of course, wasn't true. Um, and so we did go over to Poland. We interviewed people from Solidarność and so forth. We also went to New York to interview people there who were um, getting support for Solidarność. But it became clear to us that this was you know, a genuinely popular movement and we, we didn't want to continue making making the film because we didn't want to pretend that it was anything other than what it was. Mm. And were they suspicious of you at all? No, because we were British. Well, I was yeah. I was British. My colleague was West German. They were quite happy to talk okay. to us, yeah. Yeah, because you, you mentioned your colleague quite a lot, and forgive me because I haven't even asked about about them, but he, he was West German, so he could travel on his passport as well. And Yes, because all my colleagues were, I mean... We, we didn't work with, with East Germans in the main. I mean, we did here in London with their reporters. Mm. Um, but normally all the other colleagues were, were, were West Germans. And I mean, my, my, my main colleague, Klaus, who I was with in Poland, he actually was born in Gdansk. And he'd, he'd fought in the Second World War um, and become, you know, very much an anti-fascist after the war. He was in the communist underground in West Germany. So he was, he was a guy who, who, who'd got a lot of experience. So it was very useful for me to work with him and to hear about his experiences. Mm. So he'd fought with the, um, with the Soviet allied Polish. No, no, with the Nazis. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was 17 when he was conscripted into the Nazi army. Okay. Um, so this was when, Gdansk was Danzig and that's right. was absorbed into the Reich. Yeah, yeah. Because right. okay. a lot of Germans living there, obviously. The yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people forget that whole Kaliningrad and Königsberg. Yes, right. yes. and That was all German all territory. Was, yeah, was, yeah. Which is now right up to uh, Latvia, I think. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Memel right. and places yes. like that. Fascinating history. I mean, it, it's. I always find it interesting around the you know, how fluid some of the borders have been yes, yes. In, in Europe and, you know, how that was Polish once and yes. now it's Ukrainian and, you know. I was going to say, it's like Ukraine today, you know. Yeah. You've got Russian-speaking minority, got Crimea, which was always part of Russia, but the Ukraine was given by Khrushchev to the mm. Ukraine and now they're fighting over it again. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it comes around again. And that, I think that's why I'm, you know, finding quite a lot of interest in this podcast series mm -hmm. because... 
a lot of the themes we cover are resurfacing again or are caused by what happened in the past in the during the cold war so for example you said you know with khrushchev handing uh the crimea to the mm. ukraine whereas- no, you're absolutely right i mean if we don't look at our history and learn from it then we we as the cliche has it we're we're, we're obliged to repeat it and we see ourselves repeating it you know i mean my opinion today i mean i'm certainly no friend of putin who's you know an authoritarian thug but um i think we if we fail to understand the russian mentality and their fear of invasion and everything else and see putin in that context then i think we we're misreading um the present and 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 mm. we're not learning from a history mm. no i think you're right i mean you know people forget that you know nato have now moved a good 3 400 miles closer to right, russia right if you include the baltic states there's almost like a pincer movement yes. around and mm. and you know they don't forget no the 22nd of june 1941 and the great patriotic war and exactly no, and all, all yes. of that history that's mm-hmm. still very immediate yes it is to them much and, more than that it is for us in yeah. many ways I mean, well you can see it in the in the you know the red square parades and yes. things like that there, mm. there's still that um fondness there yes well again if we look at history you know the russians have never had democracy they had mm. authoritarian tsarism and then uh, then the revolution and then stalin um and so um they they do have faith in a strong leader because they they have no sense of of democracy and how to build a proper democracy um and and we're seeing that now with putin yeah and that's mm. why he's got a lot of support and why as you say with stalin it, it's it's a bit like some people of our brexiteers who have nostalgia for the empire you know mm. and a lot think back on the stalin era with nostalgia they forget all the crimes and everything else and it's understandable in the context yeah. yeah yeah well it and i think you you're right it's the way history is taught mm-hmm. because you know our certainly when i was at school you weren't taught about the bengal famine or any no, no. any mm-hmm. anything like that it was and this was 60s 70s mm-hmm. but you know you 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 didn't cover any of the darker corners of british history no. like ireland and and stuff like that admittedly i mean i was surprised when when i did my history it was social and economic history right. so it was corn laws chartism stuff like exactly. trade unionism <laughs> which i found surprisingly interesting yes. because i always thought well, i'm really only interested in political history yeah. and and that sort of side of it so it's interesting i mean we're different generations but you have obviously the same schooling as i yeah. had <laughs> yeah 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 Well I was always surprised my English uh, literature teacher we didn't do any Shakespeare at all none all right. of the classics we did Graham Greene's Brighton Rock all right um and uh we did uh Arnold Wesker Chicken Soup with Barley oh, wow. oh that was very different to mine because we just did Shakespeare yeah, <laughs> yeah. so looking back on it I think oh, it was probably quite a left yes Must you know been, a, a left leaning yeah, yeah. uh teacher to yes. take us on 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 that path but So you you were talking about your um frustration with not being able to cover subjects that you thought were important and should be shown in the GDR. I think it was a, it was around not being able to criticize Iraq oh. because they were an ally or they were a friendly power. Yes, because there was a time when when in the early days of Saddam where he because he came to power basically with the collaboration of the communists in Iraq which was quite a strong communist party um and he was the Ba'ath Socialist Party so called 
And so in the early days, the GDR and the Soviet Union, I think, cooperated with Saddam Hussein. They even helped him set up his secret service uh, network. Um, but it became clearer. Well, he started then persecuting the communists and, and, and imprisoning them and, and, and assassinating them. Um, but despite that, the GDR was still had some form of cooperation with him, which I found quite horrendous. And we were just asked to go and film in the country and give a positive picture, mm. in essence, of the country. And, and I refused to do that because I knew what was happening. I mean, I got family who had to flee Iraq um, because uh, because of the persecution. So I knew what was going on. And when the wall comes open, where were you on, at that? How did you hear about that? I was actually next to the wall on the 9th of November, 1989. We, we'd got one of our regular meetings of all the, all the colleagues, the film colleagues, <clears throat> and uh, we were having our meeting there. I mean, it was, it was clear things were bubbling under the surface, but suddenly we heard all these car horns outside and we saw rows of Trabants and Wartburgs moving towards the border and we realised something must, must have happened and that was when the, the wall was opened. Um, and so that was very clear then. There was no, there was no going back to the old GDR. That was that was that was now finished. And what was the immediate reaction of your your colleagues to to that? Was I there think, a mixture of people who were believers and those that thought that reforms needed to happen? I think all my Western colleagues were clear that reforms needed to happen. Um, I think my GDR colleagues were were stunned um, and didn't make any immediate comments they had they kept their thoughts to themselves mm. um but we were very clear that you know things could never be the same again um and so that was yeah i mean it was it was a moment mm. of big change in europe that yeah was yeah i mean that shabovsky press conference is just a classic yes. example of make sure you've read your notes properly exactly, before you yes. uh a classic big mistake, I think, but it wouldn't have changed the, the history in a sense. It was just it, it just would have been, been a day later. Exactly. It would have it would have been announced. Exactly. So you know, he he always comes across as the fall guy, yes. but you know, no, I was just I was just pleased and, and amazed. I mean, this is this is the thing one has to. It's no, it's no praise in a sense of of the communist system, but at least these uh, revolutions were peaceful, and they could have gone badly wrong. But I think you know one has to recognise certainly the the guy who took over from Honecker. Egon Krentz, um, and the leader of the uh, GDR counter-espionage, uh, Michel Wolf, yeah. they were adamant that no force would be used. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if guns had been used, then it would have been pretty bloody. But at, yeah. least, but at least it happened peacefully, which was good. Yeah. I found a fascinating interview on YouTube with Krentz, two hours long with English subtitles, oh, right. which I was extremely grateful for. Um, and it was it was really interesting. It was a West German journalist um, in interviewing him. Um, but it, it's it's just interesting hearing that insight because obviously you have to take these some of these interviews with a little bit of a pinch of salt yeah. because they they're looking at things with hindsight and don't necessarily want to share um, some some areas. And Marcus Wolf is an interesting character mm. because I've read his book Spy Without a Face, and I just sense he's sort of uh he wanted to say things the way that he wanted to be heard rather than giving you the the full truth i think probably the biggest example in there is that he claims that he knew nothing of 
the sanctuary given to the Red Army faction um, uh, group in East Germany and the the training that mm. they were given in in modern weaponry. Mm. Um, but an interesting character none, nonetheless. I mean, he he almost tried to portray himself as a reformist mm. after which I don't know. Well, he did come out. He was speaking on the in some of the big big meetings in 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 Berlin in in eighty nine, calling for reform. And I mean, he was he was you know he was a cultured man. He was intelligent, and he realised I think what I was just saying to you that you know this system can't continue. You know, it's mm. just refusing to change and refusing to recognise that, that we can't mm. continue. Um, and you might say, yeah, a little late in the day, but at least mm. he did. He realised yeah. uh, what was happening. Unlike his counterpart, Milka, who was head of the internal part of the Secret Service, which was he was probably quite a nasty piece of work. Yes. Yeah, certainly by all account. When he was subsequently prosecuted for the murder of a police officer in the yeah. 1930s in the as, period, yeah, as yeah. well. Um, were you ever approached by the Stasi for any anything? You know, asked to inform or you know keep yes, an I, eye on people. Yes, I was people. approached. I think I mentioned that in my book. I was approached when I when I first applied to marry my East German girlfriend. I was called before a, a committee who asked me whether I'd be willing to work for the GDR, um, and. You know, I wanted to get married, so I wanted to make things mm. easy because the idea was, well, if you if you cooperate with us, we'll we'll make it easy for you. Um, but I made it perfectly clear then. I said, well, I support the GDR, support socialism. I'm willing to give the GDR what support I can, but I wouldn't certainly wouldn't be willing to spy against my own country. Um, and anyway, they accepted that, and um, basically, then I was put in touch with a with a Stasi man who um, <clears throat> just chatted to me, it was the usual sort of softening up process, sent me to West Berlin um, to just see how I'd react, how I'd how I'd how I would behave. I mean I was the most useless spy anyway. I was mm. I was I was, wouldn't be the best person to, to do that sort of thing. But um I wasn't asked to inform on anybody. I was asked if I thought any of my colleagues might be worthwhile recruiting. Um and I mentioned several who I thought might be worth talking to. Um, but I certainly didn't give any personal information mm. about any. Mm. And they stopped cooperating with me when we organized a film show, illegal film show in, 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 in East Berlin. And the Stasi came before we could start showing the films and said, no, stop. Pum. And they took all our details and IDs and, and stopped us showing the films. And we got <clears throat> quite a lot of criticism for that by the, by the chancellor of the film school. Saying what the hell were you thinking about and bum 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 bum, but um, there were no repercussions apart from the fact they said, "Okay, we obviously can't work with you anymore because you didn't tell us about this." And I was quite happy, and that was yeah. it. Yeah, spontaneity is never something that they were particularly fond no, of. No, have you ever uh, looked at your file? I haven't. No, I was no. going to, and then it was—it's such a bureaucratic process. In the end, I, I didn't. But yeah, I don't know if anybody else has looked at it, but yeah. Well, I thought, can other people look at your file? I would have thought it's only if... It's not easy, but I think I think you possibly can. I mean, there's a there's a recent film come out in, in Germany called Gundermann about a, a quite a well-known GDR folk singer, ballad singer, who was also a Stasi uh, mm. man. And, and a reporter managed to get hold of his file. Oh, okay. So, but I don't know. It's not easy. It's true to get yeah. hold of other people's files. But, I mean, you you can obviously find out who... 
who was informing on you because people have done that. I mean, that's mm. caused a hell of a lot of disruption in people's lives, mm. you know, friendships and yeah. marriages. Because I think there's a lot redacted in there. Yeah. Um, but obviously by some lot, of the not. conversations that, that are recorded, you can yes. potentially work out who, yes. who, who was involved. Yes. Um, so with, with the fall of the wall, I mean, what, what was your view on the, on the future of the GDR? Presumably you felt that there, that there should have been a third way there. So rather than being subsumed into West Germany, that the state would still exist as a more benign it would have country. been nice i mean i i was dubious right from the start because you know it's it, obviously it was a one country divided <clears throat> and although in the meantime there'd, there'd been an, uh, uh, a strong sense of uh, nationalism within the gdr as well as within west germany but nevertheless they were part of the same nation and so there was a there was a strong feeling that people wanted unity Apart from the fact that West Germany was a very affluent, rich nation. And so the GDR, many people there thought, well, we want part of this wealth as well. Why not? Mm. So the, the word was quite a significant minority who would have liked to have pursued a third way. Um, but I didn't think that was feasible. I think things had gone too far. People had become so anti-socialist, particularly in the later years. Young people were feeling mm. more and more frustrated uh, that they couldn't do things that they wanted to do. And they felt they were being monitored all the time. Um, so I realised that that was probably the only alternative, although the way it was done is still pretty devastating because it was a takeover. It was a colonial takeover in many ways. Mm. Um, I mean, all the former academics in the GDR, the heads of businesses um, in universities, they, they were all dismissed, um, so all lost their jobs, and all these jobs were taken over by, by West Germans. Um Often not very competent ones, but it was a great job because you if, you, if you couldn't get a professorship in West Germany, you could jump into East Germany and get a professorship like that. Um, and so a lot of people did feel very bitter afterwards. Um, and then, of course, all the, all the cooperative farms were, were um, broken up. People lost their houses because people came back from the West and said, oh, that was my house uh, before the war, so I want it back. Um, you know, a lot of unemployment, a lot of young people had to leave to go to the West to find work. So it was a pretty traumatic period. Mm. So the, the promises made by the Western politicians didn't materialise? Some did, some didn't. I mean, yeah. obviously travel, which uh, which everybody was overjoyed about, is mm. great. And people wouldn't certainly wouldn't want to go back to being mm. cooped up in, 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 in a small nation like the GDR. Um, but yeah, a lot of the promises weren't fulfilled. Mm. I mean, even today, 30 years after the wall came down, there's still uh, wage differentials, pensions differentials between the East and West. Mm. So it's still, in a sense, treated as uh, treated like second-class citizens in many ways. Yeah, yeah, and there's still quite a significant vote for Delinka. Yes, that's right. In, in the East as well. Yes. I think yes. it's twenty percent. It was up to 20, 24, 25 yeah. in some places. It, it's it's sinking a bit now because I think it was mainly the older generation. Mm. Because although, after all, like in like in any country, whatever the system. There are quite a few people who lived quite well and people, you know, if you were part of, you know, you supported socialism and you got a job in government or in the army or whatever, you, you could have quite a good life. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a stability there exactly. and cradle safe, to grave. Safe job. Yes. That's yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, in your book, there's a there's a comment 
where somebody um, says to you, I, I think, is is through your work you supported the shooting of people at the wall. I got the impression from the book that that, that concerned you, that, that through some of your work you had supported that. Yes, it's, all, it's always a concern for a journalist, you know, the effect your work has on other people. And, I mean, I was acutely aware particularly later stages and that's why i became dissatisfied to a large extent i mean i was happy because i had my own critique of capitalism and particularly capitalism in britain with its class system and everything else so i was quite happy to make that criticism but i was aware that even though it's as far as i was concerned the truth about this or partial truth about this country it was nevertheless being used by the gdr um as an alibi for their own system um in the sense saying look what a what a, you you've got stability we've got full employment we've got kindergarten we've got decent housing but look what it's like in capitalism um and it, on that level it was true but it was nevertheless being used as an alibi to justify their system so if you extrapolate from that then yes i could be accused of giving support to a system which did shoot people on the border um so yeah i mean you you, you can't it's the same as, you know, with our, what happened in, in the colonial countries, not with our generation, yeah. but what happened, you know, we're all, we're all responsible, we're no, all guilty ab- in some ways. Absolutely. But, <laughs> but I mean, certainly I would, I would have never allowed my reporting to be used, uh, you know, to justify killing on the border or, or as some of my colleagues were accused that our films were used by the Stasi or something or we were mm. doing Stasi work. We never did. Mm. Um, certainly I didn't and, and, and I wouldn't have justified that in any means. Mm. But um, mm. yeah, I mean, it's... It's a difficult one. Mm. With retrospect, as you say, we can, we're all the wiser. And I was perhaps, you can say, naive, uh, rosy-coloured spectacles, you know, hoping for the best when it was never going to happen. But, okay, that's the way it was at the time. As far it as was, was a different time. Yes. It, it was a different time. And I think it, it, it's difficult for people to look at it in the perspective of the present mm. day mm. to envisage the situation that the GDR was in, certainly in you know the 60s when you describe it, where it's still trying to recover from the war damage and 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 that that situation. And um, it was ostracised by by the West. You know, it couldn't it couldn't get investment. It couldn't import goods. I mean, the, the West Germans cut off um, coal supplies mm. in one of the harshest winters after the war and they they had no other recourse so it was that sort of thing that was happening so it was like a war a cold mm. war as you mm. as your your website's called it wasn't mm. definitely yes yeah yeah um and how how would you describe your political beliefs now i'm still a socialist um i'm a member of the labor party um and i I'm a socialist with many qualifications. Um, I don't have any uh, illusions about how difficult it is to build a a more just society or a more democratic Mm. society. And I certainly have no faith in, never did have actually, but I certainly don't have any faith in individuals who who offer us a panacea, whether it's Trump or Putin or anybody else. You know, I think people have to create the democracy that they want to live in. Uh, we all have to make that contribution. Um, but, yeah, that said, I mean, as I say, I don't... And I don't regret the time I, I worked for the GDI. It was, for me, an incredible experience. And it was, a, in a sense, an experiment that failed. But but there was a lot of positive as well, um, which which I so don't feel I have to 
apologise for it. Um, this is my last question. You'll be delighted to know. But what of all the documentary pieces you've filmed, what would you say is the one you're probably most proud of? I think... It can be more than one. <laughs> I was going to say, it's actually two. The, as, as we've mentioned earlier, the, the one... I mean, we made several, but the, the, the Portuguese 74 revolution was was the most inspiring because we spent months in the country, filmed thousands of feet of film, and actually charted the movement through to uh, when it first had a democratic government again. And so that 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 was an incredibly historically important um, lesson of how democracy can be built, how it can work, how what overcoming dictatorship really means. And the other one was in, in Namibia, where, you know, it was at that time a forgotten country. It was being um, run basically by the South Africans by default, because it shouldn't have been. It was supposed to be run by the United Nations. And, and the people there were, you know, desperate to have freedom from apartheid and, and run their own country. And we had very moving moments, conversations and, and interviews with, with people working for Namibian liberation movement in Namibia. And the film was actually used by Sean McBride in the United Nations during the campaign to get South Africa out of the country and to give the country its independence. And it was recognised as, as, as a film which demonstrated clearly that the, the people were behind the freedom movement. It wasn't just a terrorist, little terrorist organisation as the South Africans characterised it. Mm. Well, John, you certainly whetted my appetite to dig into that Brandenburg archive. Um, to have a look at these. I really appreciate you um, sharing your story with us on, on Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it, Ian. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode. Don't forget to visit the show notes at coldwarconversations.com where there's further details of this week's episode and links to John's book, which I highly recommend. We only really scratched the surface in our chat. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just go to coldwarconversations.com and click on the Join the Conversation option. We're also keen to chat with you on Twitter. Our handle there is at Cold War Pod, and we're also on Instagram at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.